Hey there, this is Brian Zond, and welcome to my sermon podcast. I'm glad that you're interested in the sermons that I preach here at Word of Life Church in St. Joseph, Missouri. And if you ever feel inclined to help us by supporting us financially, you can do that at our website, wolc.com. Thank you. Well, good morning, everybody. Good morning. And uh, on the church calendar, yep, we've completed our six-week journey through Easter tide and arrived at Pentecost Sunday, the day that we remember the outpouring of the Holy Spirit and with it the birth of the church. Because the church, the, the ecclesia, the community of those that are called out of just their own individual private life into a public life together of following Jesus, that's what the church is, Uh, that community of people, that ecclesia, that church, is to be a spirit-filled community. That's what's to energize us. So on this Pentecost Sunday, I want to preach on the experience of the Spirit. The Bible tells the story, I mean the big story, uh, is of God's redemptive work through history. And it begins with God uh, working His purposes of redemption through history, through a chosen people, the people of Israel. But among the chosen people, there were chosen people. (laughs) So you you have God says, okay, I'm going to work through history to bring my salvation into the world, and God chooses a people. Israel. But among Israel, there are, among the chosen people, there are chosen people. I mean, I'm talking mostly about, you know, like the patriarchs and the prophets, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, uh, Moses, David, Elijah, Isaiah, Jeremiah, people like that. And then God did something new, and he chose a Jewish girl, because most of those ones I mentioned were men. God chooses a Jewish girl by the name of Miriam, uh, Mary, to conceive by the Holy Spirit and bring this salvation into the world. Jesus, the Savior of the world. Now, for six months, for six months now, by the calendar, we have been telling the story of this salvation that comes into the world through Jesus. Advent, Christmas, Epiphany, Lent, Easter, Ascension, and now we've arrived at Pentecost and also at the present moment because that's, that we're caught up with where we are in God's work in the world, and we've arrived at the present moment of the salvation story, and with Pentecost we discover that the chosen people is the human race, and the holy land is the whole earth. With Pentecost, we discover that, that the chosen people is the human race, so you belong to the chosen people, and the Holy Land is the whole earth. You you live in the Holy Land. Amen. Acts chapter 2, verse 17. In the last days, God says, in the last days, last days, in the last days. Are we in the last days? Well, we are. We've been in the last days for 2,000 years. That's right. I mean, with Pentecost, we're always on the precipice of the parousia. (laughs) That is, we're always just right there waiting for the consummation of the ages, the revealing, 
of the fullness of the kingdom of Christ. In the last days, God says, I will pour out my spirit upon all people. There it is. All people. I'll pour out my spirit upon all people. So all people are the chosen people. Your sons and your daughters will prophesy. So it doesn't matter, male, female. God pour out his spirit upon daughters and sons, and they'll prophesy. Your young men will see visions. Your old men will dream dreams. So young and old, the spirit is poured out upon them. In those days, I will pour out my spirit, even on my servants. So there's no social distinction. That doesn't matter. That's irrelevant. In those days, I'll pour out my spirit, even on my servants, men and women alike, and they will prophesy. This promise, this promise of the Holy Spirit, is to you, to your children, and to those who are far off, far away. That's, that's us from Peter's perspective. Uh, this promise is to you and to your children and to those far away, all who have been called by the Lord our God. So that's what we see at Pentecost. Is suddenly there's this expansion. Instead of, instead of just a select few have the Spirit, you know, a prophet here, a patriarch there, you know, a Jewish girl named Mary, conceives by, instead of a select few, it's, it's, it's being poured out upon all. Now, we always have trouble, though, with understanding how big all is, because we like all asterisk. Oh, yeah, you know, all meaning ours. All those are like us. But it's all, right? God's pouring out His Spirit upon all. And uh, so, so that's why you have all of those mentions of all those crazy places, you know. There are all these people, the Parthenians and Medes and Elamites and people from Mesopotamia. I won't read them all. Uh, all of that. And yet still, that was still all just Jewish. It was, it was Jewish people from all over, but it was still just Jewish people. And then you get to Acts chapter 8, and you have Samaritans. Oh, are being filled with the Holy Spirit. Now, but you know, Jews and Samaritans were like cousins. They didn't like each other, but they're cousins. Uh, but then you get to Acts chapter 10, and the Holy Spirit is poured out in the home of an Italian military officer named Cornelius. And then they start figuring it out that, oh, all means all. God's going to pour out His Spirit on all. Amen. And the Holy Spirit is the experience of God. I mean, theologically, I understand. You know, the Holy Spirit is the, is the third person, the third hypostasis. I understand all that. The third person of the Trinity. I get that. But it is by this person of the Holy Spirit that we can enjoy and experience God. Because if not, it's too easy to just turn God into something that we think about, talk about, make doctrines about, argue about on Facebook. And we forget that God is to be experienced. Because God is not out there, God is right here. And the Holy Spirit is the one who mediates the experience of God. God is to be experienced, and the Holy Spirit is the agency of the experience of God. So when I began that water to wine journey, that long journey, that, that journey of transformation in 2004, 17 years ago, 
I embarked upon that, what I call my water to wine journey, because I was being born again and again. Uh, that, it, that journey definitely included a deep dive into academic theology. It was part of it. It was required. Uh, the Holy Spirit gave me required reading. <laughs> and so there was a deep dive into academic theology that is intellectually robust and challenging and credible, and that was part of it. It was required of me, but this journey was not initiated by that. It involved that later on, but it was initiated by dreams and visions and prophetic words from the Lord. The idea that you have to choose between intellectual theology and the or the experience of the Spirit. You have to choose. So you have, you have, these, you have these theologians in the academy, you know, with their degrees, which I respect. I'm, I'm all for that. I, I learn from them. I listen to them. I read them. But there's, there comes this idea that you have to choose between either academic theology or experiences in the Spirit. So you can either be an academic theologian or you can be a charismatic, and you have to choose. That is, actually, that's nonsense. Uh, that, is, that is not true. It's a false dualism foreign to the New Testament. That kind of thinking is not present in the New Testament. It really comes from the Enlightenment, not from the Apostles. Uh, critical thinking and mystical experience is the normal Christian life. They go together. You don't choose one or the other. I mean, if you have to choose, choose the experience of the Spirit. Uh, but they, they don't have to be separated. Uh, they go together. Now, are there pitfalls? Can people pursuing the experience of the Spirit become weirdos? I have been witness to it. I know this. I've seen this. That can happen. Uh, I can name the names, and I'm not going to. <laughs> uh, but are there also pitfalls that people really can, just in a pursuit of intellectual theology, just lose contact with anything that has life? And it all becomes merely an academic exercise that just spins around in circles among other academics. That can happen too. Those are the pitfalls. Uh, but, that, but we don't have to do that. What we're trying to do, we don't want to, we don't want to be a weirdo. And but we don't want to be all you know dry and all of that. I mean, there is a sweet spot somewhere between, and it's a pretty large sweet spot between fanatical weirdness and intellectual aridness, where you're all dried out. There is a sweet spot in between. In 1971, German Catholic theologian, that would be someone that definitely belongs among the academy. You know, is, is, is thinking very, very robustly and learnedly and critically about theology. Karl Rahner, Karl Rahner, Catholic German theologian in 1971, said this The devout Christian of the future will either be a mystic, one who has experienced something, that's what he means by mystic, someone's experienced something in the spirit, or he will cease to be anything at all. Was, that was Karl Rahner 50 years ago. The Christian of the future will be, will be a mystic, someone who's experienced something or ceased to be anything at all. I would say that Karl Rahner's prophesied future has arrived. 
That's pretty much where we're at now. There are exceptions, but in general, either people are going to have some kind of experience with God, or they're going to say, I'm not going to do this anymore. I'm not going to bear the label of Christian if I don't have some sort of experience that is real in my life. And so Carl Rahner's prophecy from 50 years ago, I, I think it has proved true. I think it's becoming more true every day. And interestingly, Carl Rahner said this in connection with the context of that. The context of what he's talking about there is in the early days of the charismatic renewal, the charismatic movement, which was experienced in both Protestant and Catholic churches. And it was a global phenomenon that you could not organize, you could not plan it. It was not something that was planned or organized like that, but there were just... It's hard to describe it if you weren't there, but people were being drawn into the experience of God by the Holy Spirit in just the the most unpredictable places, in churches. You know, it, would, it didn't matter. It didn't matter what kind of church it was. It could be some sort of Episcopal church. It could be a Baptist church. It, could, well, it didn't matter. But it, you couldn't necessarily control it or predict it. But people that had been in, somebody, somebody just bear witness and say, I know that's the way it was. Yeah. That, that, that people that had been going to church for 30 years, and they're just dutiful. You know, they're just dutiful. They just go, they're there, they're good people, they believe the right stuff, but, but it's, they wouldn't say it, maybe, but it's pretty dead to them. It's pretty dry. It's pretty lifeless. All of a sudden, bang, something happened, and they were, they were just whoo, excited about Jesus all the time, and they're having four Bible studies a week because they want to. And they're prophesying over each other and getting words and being a little bit weird sometimes. But at least there was life. Yeah. That saved Christianity for millions of people. Millions of people would have just, they would not have survived the withering drought of modernity and secularism if there hadn't been something like that. And, it's, and that, that outpouring, in fact, was responsible for the growth of global, well, of Christianity in the global south. Christianity is a, is a faith that is growing globally. It's not growing in Europe. It's not growing in North America. Globally, it's growing all over because of the exponential growth in Africa and Latin America, and that's directly connected to that outpouring of the Holy Spirit called the Charismatic Renewal in the 1970s. Now, it was indeed rambunctious and unwieldy, and there were excesses, for sure, uh, but on the whole... The charismatic movement rescued Christianity for millions of people who were on the verge of accepting modernity's indictment that Christianity was nothing more than an arcane relic of the past. I came into the faith, in the, it was mixed up with me with the Jesus movement. The Jesus movement, charismatic, they kind of together. And I had, you know, I mean, I was just thrust into this experience because... Christ was revealed to me in a very remarkable way when I was 15 years old. And then by the time I was 19, 
um, there was a lot of energy with the outpouring of the Spirit. I remember, I remember one time getting together. I was 19 years old. And I, I went to have a little prayer meeting with, with uh, two other guys. They were a few years older. They were like 23, 24. Um, even that, you know, 19-year-olds just going to get together for a prayer meeting. That's, that seems remarkable. But it seemed normal. And we got together, and we were going to pray. Somebody read a little passage out of a book. And we all, none, you know, none of this was contrived. It wasn't organized. We weren't trying to impress it. it what happened was, the next thing we knew, we were just all three lying on our face saying, oh God, for three hours, for three hours. A week later, one week later, uh, there, there, there was a guy, it was a tall guy, had long hair, ponytail, big beard, black beard. I, I knew his name, but I didn't know him. His name is Mike Jones. And uh, remember Mike Jones, Don? Remember? Yeah. Mike Jones came up to me. I mean, this you have to know Mike. He comes up, he doesn't enter, he just says, Do you like to pray? <laughs> I said, Yeah, yeah, in theory anyway. <laughs> and then I'm just tell you, I'm telling the story as it is. He says, Do you pray in tongues? <laughs> Sometimes. He said, Well, would you like to get together and pray? I said, Okay. He said, he said Come to my apartment on Wednesday at 7 o'clock. We got together and started praying, and we were swept up into the experience of God, the experience of the Spirit. We prayed for three hours, and this time not, oh God, this time with all kinds of, of words, and, and we're declaring this is going to happen. I mean, it was, it, was, it was wild, unwieldy, rambunctious, a bit nutty, and yet the stuff we said came to pass. Word of Life Church. In some ways, it was born in that prayer meeting. What was it? 435 North 17th, apartment B. Dang, should be a shrine. <laughs> Mike Jones, you know, was in our church. He found a member of this church, found an elder of this church. He stayed for four years, three or four years. And then he, went, and then he was sent from this church off to Mexico. Where he has a church today of, I don't know, I didn't know how big it is. It's like stupid big. Thousands of people, thousands of people, and um, I don't know. I think they're getting close to like a hundred daughter churches. Agua Viva. We we supported them for years and years and years. They could support us now. <laughs> but that's that's my roots. That's where I come from. That was all. Real Again, it was wild and unwieldy and rambunctious, and it would make people nervous, and not all of it was, you know, straight out of the Trinity. <laughs> but still, we were having an experience in God. And there was a lot of energy, and that was not uncommon. But then what happened with the charismatic movement is it got, it got sick. It got infected. It got infected mostly with American consumerism. And it, instead of seeking God, God became the means by which they could seek money, celebrity, prosperity, influence, political power. Oh, that was a terrible one. And it, and, and it be, but it happens fairly slowly. 
I mean, if you're living in it in real time, you can tell the story, and you look back and say, yeah, about 1980, it started becoming sick, infected with consumerism and politicism and all the bad-isms of America, and, and by the 1990s, it was, it was far from what it began as. Now, you can tell it in, in, in one minute and see it, if, but when you're living it, you don't necessarily notice it until one day you wake up and go, what the heck? This is not where we started, and that's why, that's when in 2004, I stood right here and said, I'm packing my bags from the charismatic movement. Now, I did it with enough, you know, preaching skills that people got excited and they clapped their hands and all that, until I actually did it, and then, then people didn't like it that I actually left. I left because it had to be left. It was, it was ill. It was no longer helpful. Um... What was once there was gone. But when I said that I packed my bags, that's what I meant. I meant I'm taking the good stuff with me. I'm not, I'm not leaving all the good stuff behind. I'm just saying what it has become in American culture with its celebrity culture and political agenda and quest for prosperity and all. I'm just leaving that. But I'm taking the good stuff with me. Acts chapter 2, verse 17. In the last days, God says, I'll pour out my spirit upon all people. Your sons and daughters will prophesy. Your young men will see visions. Your old men will dream dreams. In those days, I'll pour out my spirit even on my servants, men and women alike, and they will prophesy. So when I packed my bags 17 years ago and moved on from easy, cheesy, cotton candy Christianity that the charismatic movement had become, uh, I did not move on from the experience of the Spirit being not only normative, but in fact, an essential aspect of Christian faith. So I expect dreams and visions and prophetic words. I expect dreams and visions and prophetic words, things like that, to be a part of my life. Not all the time. Not every day. That's when you become a weirdo. That's, that's, the, that's fanaticism that you want to stay away from. Uh, but I do expect to dream some dreams that mean something, that are, that are somehow something being communicated in the night season. I expect to see some visions. That is, I expect to be enabled by the Holy Spirit to have some prophetic imagination and look and see not just what is, but what might be. I expect to have some words from the Lord, to hear some words and go, oh, did you, did you just say cross mystery, eclectic community, revolution? Yes, I did, the Holy Spirit said. All right, well, that'll give me enough to go on for. I expect that kind of thing to happen. And I expect sometimes, now and then, not all the time, but now and then to be able to speak like that to someone. And it's a word that they later say, that changed my life. Which is to say, I'm not going to live all of my life alone up, upstairs inside my head. You know, we'll get a little philosophy here because we never did that in a charismatic renewal. <laughs> Descartes, you know, cogito ergo sum. I think, therefore, I am. Well, there's problems with that. He, he, was, he was trying to discover what he could not doubt, find a foundation that he could build his life on. He was trying to prove the existence of God, actually. Uh, it doesn't work that way. And the result of that was that the head became the sole domain of our engagement with God. We all ran up inside our head because we said, okay, we're going to determine what is truth 
by just the sole arbiter of the lone self all alone upside in the head will determine what can or cannot be doubted. So it all becomes thinking about God, and that's a problem because I certainly do think about God. I mean, I certainly do use cognitive ability in reading and writing about God, but my head, this part up here, is not all of me. It's not all of me. I'm not just a, a mental faculty propped up on a spine and arms and legs. There's another part of me that may be the easiest, I mean, there, there's different language for it, but across cultures, people will always gravitate towards this. They'll talk about the heart. The heart. There is a difference between the head and the heart, whether you can explain it or not. Explaining the difference is challenging. But you don't have to explain it because you know there is a difference. A contemporary of Descartes, and Descartes was a good man. He was an, I think he made some mistakes in his thinking, but he was a good guy. But he was, I mean, he wasn't the only brilliant man of his time. You have Blaise Pascal, who was a rough contemporary, 17th century mathematician. I mean, one of the true, I mean, if you have a list of the five greatest mathematicians in history, Blaise Pascal is going to be on that list. He's um, an enormous intellect, mathematician and mystic. Also a mystic, a believer who had experiences in God. And he's the one that gives us the phrase, the heart has its reasons, of which reason knows nothing. That's, that's a, a fragment from one of his pensées, is one of his thoughts. The, the whole thought goes like this. The heart has its reasons, of which reason knows nothing. We know this in countless ways. Do you sometimes have a, have a conflict between your head and your heart? Maybe you're trying to make a decision, and everything, everything says cognitively, if you're just using reason, go this way, go this way, but your heart says, I think I'm supposed to go this way. Am I talking to people who have no idea what I'm speaking about, or you do know this? That, whatever you want to call it, intuition. You know, I've lived long enough to know that you don't want to regularly violate your intuition, especially if you're one that is trying to to have your soul properly formed in practices of prayer, you learn you can really trust that intuition more than you think. That was an interesting sentence the way I said that. You learn to trust your intuition more than you think. You know me well enough to say I'm, I'm not, I, don't, I don't abandon the rational faculty. But that's not all of me. The heart has its reasons, of which reason knows nothing. We know this in countless ways. It is the heart which perceives God and not the reason. That is what faith is. God perceived by the heart, not by reason. We experience God, not all alone upstairs in the head. We climb down into the, into the living room of the heart. I'll talk about this next Sunday. But... Where, where you can think about God upstairs in the attic, <laughs> but you're going to meet God in the living room downstairs in your heart. I'll pour out my spirit upon all people, your sons and daughters. Well, they, well they'll prophesy. Young men see visions, old men dream dreams. 
You know, dreams have been especially helpful to me in my spiritual journey. Those of you that have been in prayer school, you know I talk about the three dreams. Looking for the faith of Abraham in New York City and then meeting Abraham. About shopping for shoes with Carl Bard in Switzerland and then riding in a taxi with Mother Teresa in Calcutta. And those dreams were not just, whatever, interesting. They actually put me in some new directions in my life that was very important. So I, I think that dreams, the dreams that matter, most dreams don't matter. But now, I mean, if you actually do dream that you are looking for the faith of Abraham and you search all over in New York City and then in the back of a used bookstore you find Abraham and he's sitting there with tattered prayer books and a tear in his eye and he says, oh, I've been, I understand you've been looking for me. And then he talks to you about uh, prayer and then gives you a kiss. That dream might mean something. I mean, you wouldn't want to just throw that one away. You go, I think maybe something's going on here. The dreams that matter, that maybe actually do mean something, and they're not common. They don't happen all the time. I'm, I'm, I have never read a single book in my life on dream interpretation. I, you know, I'm, that may be legitimate. I don't know. I don't go there. But I've had dreams. That as I pondered them, I realized they meant something. These dreams that do mean something, I think can be described as the heart thinking. Because yes, the heart can think. It's different than the mind. Um, it, it thinks in more creative ways of metaphor. So that when the conscious mind, the rational mind, goes offline, we call that asleep, it gives space for the heart to do some other stuff. I mean, the mind is involved, it's receiving input, but, but I think it comes from the heart, not from the mind. Last Sunday I mentioned that I had this dream, ten days ago I had this dream that I was in a big city and was just seeing the vista of the city with its buildings and shops and restaurants and avenues and cars and pedestrians. And it was, it was, it was just a big city. And it wasn't great, it wasn't bad, it was just a big city. And all of a sudden these sirens went off, very loud, sirens. And as if they were, the sirens were, were right there somewhere, but I, they were like everywhere. And everybody was hearing them, and everyone knew what the sirens meant. It meant the day of the Lord, the second coming, the appearing of Christ, the parousia, whatever you want to call it. It meant that. And there were differing reactions. Some were elated, some were alarmed. Some were happy, some were terrified. It kind of depends on how connected you are to the world as it is. If you're connected to the world as it is, really, really invested in it, I want it like this, then you might be alarmed if it's going to change. But if you already have been yearning for that which is to come, maybe you're elated. Anyway, so the sirens are going off, and I'm, I'm looking at the cityscape while the sirens are going off, and then suddenly I see, what I see before my eyes is, is it's as if it was fabric and it was suddenly being torn away, revealing behind it Something not entirely different, but, but so different because it was so much better, so much more beautiful, so much bright colors and bright and beautiful. And, it, and that was what was substantial. Suddenly I realized that this world as it is, is not that which is enduring, not that which is eternal. That there is, a, an, there is a, an, an extent to which much of this is, I don't know what word to use. I don't want to use the word illusion, but, 
but not as real as it could be. It's a kind of a Plato's cave sort of situation where we're not really seeing what God intends. But when that, when that was ripped away, then I saw it wasn't a replacement entirely because it, it had similarities, but it was just so much better. Now, when I talked about this last Sunday, I didn't, I didn't even, it didn't even compute in me until I was talking with Perry that uh, the sirens in my dream seemed to function in the, the same way as trumpets in the Bible. Jesus talks about the trumpets, and well, it's in the Old Testament too, but Paul does in both Corinthians, Thessalonians, lots of trumpets in, in Revelation. I think the point is that apocalyptic metaphors are not literal, but they do reveal something, something that we probably cannot describe or comprehend in ordinary language. Dreams give us symbolic descriptions of that which is really lies beyond language, which is ineffable. So our heart knows things about God that our mind doesn't know. I, I, know, I know this to be true, that our heart at times can lead the way into a deeper knowledge of God. But we have to learn how to trust that and then follow that. If we restrict our knowledge to, of God to what we find alone upstairs in our mental attic, and never go down into the living room of the heart and listen to the Spirit, we will probably craft a theology that is cold and sterile and seriously deficient. I would say most of my writing is me trying to express in thought and language that which I've already been intuiting in the heart. So I guess what I'm saying on this Pentecost Sunday is very simple. Uh, open to the Holy Spirit. It's not hard to receive the Holy Spirit. The, Spirit. the Spirit is a gift that's given. Would you stand with me? Just stand with me. And sometimes, you know, we want to make it hard. It's not hard to receive the Spirit. There's, not, there's no hoops you have to jump through. There's nothing. Here's, here's, first of all, it's a gift that's given. A, a gift is something that is not hard for you to, re- it's just, somebody says, here, I made this for you. <laughs> here, I bought this for you. Here it is. And all you have to say is, thank you. Jesus says it like this. This is Jesus talking, Luke eleven nine. He says, and so I tell you, keep on asking, and you will receive what you ask for. Keep on seeking, and you will find Keep on knocking and the door will be opened to you. For everyone who asks, receives. Everyone. Everyone who asks, receives. Everyone who seeks, finds. And to everyone who knocks, the door will be opened. You parents, if your children ask for a fish, do you give them a snake instead? What kind of parent would do that? Or if they ask for an egg... Do you give them a scorpion? You know, there's been a lot of weird stuff that has happened in the history of humanity, but I can't, I, I don't know that that's ever happened. Kid asks for some scrambled eggs, yeah, okay, kid. Here, have a scorpion crawling around on your foot. This is, Jesus is using absurd humor here. You parents, if, you, if your children ask for a fish, do you give them a snake instead? Or if... Or if they ask for an egg, do you give them a scorpion? Of course not. So if you sinful people 
know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask Him? So just ask Him. Just, just stand right here. Just stand right here. Close your eyes. Just open up and just ask Him. Say, God, well, I'll help you. Father, Jesus told us that if we ask, we'll receive. If we seek, we'll find. If we knock, the door will be open. We know that you are good. You are perfectly good. There's nothing but goodness in you. There's no darkness in you. There's no shadow of turning in you. You are, you are pure light, pure goodness. And Jesus told us that you would give us the Holy Spirit if we ask, that we might experience you, not just think about you from afar, but experience you. In all kinds of ways. It's not just one way. There's many ways. But Father, in the name of Jesus, we ask for the gift of the Spirit. And we receive it. We receive it. We receive the Holy Spirit, which is freely given. And maybe it's not even so much as receiving as we, we open to the Spirit. Just, just say, I don't care if you say it out loud or not, but just, just begin to say, I, I open to new experiences in the Spirit. I open to new experiences in the Spirit. They, they won't be like mine. So you say, well, Pastor Brian, he has lots of crazy, wild dreams. I wonder, I wonder when the dreams start. Well, you might have dreams, but it, but it might be something else altogether. It'll be what you need. Just open to it. Just, just, yes, 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 there are people that become weird. I get that. I know that. I've seen it. But that's not you. That's not you. You're just going to simply be open to the Holy Spirit giving you an experience in God in new ways that are going to energize your life. Going to help guide you, help lead you, help the, help, help, Jesus become more and more wonderful and real to you. And so, Lord, we thank you for the gift of the Holy Spirit. We open to the gift of the Holy Spirit. We anticipate and expect the ministry of the Holy Spirit to be at work in our life. We thank you for it in Jesus' name. Amen and amen. And now let's come to the table of the Lord where we mystically... We can't, quite we can't quite explain it, but somehow we have a connection with the body and blood of Christ. The cup of blessing which we bless enables us to participate in the blood of Christ. The bread which we break, it allows us to participate mysteriously but truthfully in the body of Christ. Join me in confessing our, our faith. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. I believe in Jesus Christ, His only Son, our Lord. He was conceived by the power of the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary. He suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended to the dead. On the third day, He rose again. He ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father. He will come again to judge the living and the dead. 
I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. Now let's confess our sins and receive forgiveness from the Lord. Most merciful God, we confess that we have sinned against you in thought, word, and deed, by what we have done and by what we have left undone. We have not loved you with our whole heart. We have not loved our neighbors as ourselves. We are truly sorry, and we humbly repent. For the sake of your Son, Jesus Christ, have mercy on us and forgive us, that we may delight in your will and walk in your ways to the glory of your name. Amen. And God is gracious to all who confess their sins and in humility ask for mercy. In the name of Jesus Christ, know this, your sins are forgiven. And this is the table, not of the church, but of the Lord. It is made ready for those who love him and for those who want to love him more. So come, you who have much faith and you who have little. You who have been here often and you who have not been here long. You who have tried to follow and you who have failed, come. Because it is the Lord who invites you. It is his will that those who want him should meet him here. Amen. The body of Christ broken for you. The blood of Christ shed for you.